0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Whether you agreed or disagreed with him, Antonin Scalia was one of the most influential justices to ever serve on the United States Supreme Court. To the right, he was a rare principled justice who used the Constitution as a neutral advisor in all of his decisions. To the left, he was a foe, embodying much of what they felt wrong with conservatism. So, which is it? To help us sort it out, I'm joined today by Rick Hassan, one of the National Law Journal's 100 Most Influential Lawyers in America and Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He is the author of The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia, and the Politics of Disruption. Rick, thanks for joining me today.
0: It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: What made Scalia such a disruptor?
0: Well, I argue that Scalia did to the Supreme Court what Newt Gingrich did to the House of Representatives in 1994 and what uh, Donald Trump is doing to the presidency right now which is changing the way we think about the institution, how it works, uh, what its powers are, and its role in society. Now, of course, he changed the Supreme Court in different ways. One way that he changed the Supreme Court is he changed what it means to be a Supreme Court justice. Before Scalia, you didn't have justices going out in public defending their uh, judicial methods and attacking the ideology of other justices. Uh, Justice Scalia would go and speak and say, uh, against the idea that the Constitution should be interpreted as a living document, that he likes his Constitution dead, dead, dead. <laughs> uh, so he changed, he changed what um, we think of as a, the role of the Supreme Court justice. He was uh, also um, someone who changed the way that uh, judges and lawyers write briefs and talk about how to resolve constitutional issues and issues of how to interpret federal statutes. He had theories known as originalism and textualism, which perhaps not changing the outcome of cases, changed how we talk about cases and also gave conservatives like Scalia a tool to be able to argue that when the other side disagreed with him, they were not only incorrect, but that they were engaged in an illegitimate exercise of uh, lawmaking rather than acting as judges.
1: And when, when Scalia uh, was first uh, appointed to the Supreme Court and started doing some of these things, how was that viewed at the time? It was this sort of new idea.
0: Well, so Scalia was um, – he bothered some of his colleagues when he came on. Um, <laughs> we know that Justice Powell objected. But that's fairly common. There were complaints about uh, Justice Sotomayor. Uh, when she came on, there are now complaints about Justice Gorsuch. So some of it is, you know, a new person. But one thing he did was he he made it a hot bench, the term that's used when oral argument is uh, very active. And uh, in, the, in the days before Scalia, it was a pretty quiet kind of uh, period. Um, uh, someone who had up to 30 minutes to speak might speak for 15 minutes without being interrupted. Now you're lucky if you're an oral advocate at the Supreme Court, you can get a couple of sentences out before someone comes in, and Chief Justice Roberts plays traffic cop, and 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 you know everybody's jockeying, they're they're trying to make their points, they're trying to convince other justices. Because one thing we know is that the Supreme Court justices, unlike on other courts, they don't really communicate about the cases before oral arguments. This is their first chance to uh, try to influence each other. Um, and Scalia was very active in that. And you have to remember that during the period Scalia comes on the court um, in the 80s. Uh, he's on the court for nearly 30 years, but you know, by the 1990s, the court becomes, uh, I think, a more polarized institution. I think Scalia had a, a role in that, but uh, a lot of what's going on at the court now is a battle between liberals and conservatives or different ideas, and Scalia would get in there and mix it up, and the other justices, uh, some of them are willing to mix it up with him.
1: What was his, uh, his confirmation process like when Reagan nominated him?
0: Uh, it is. Uh, it, it was a, a, a relatively um, easy affair for him. Uh, part of the reason for that uh, is that uh, he came up at the same time as Justice Rehnquist, who was already on the court, was being considered for chief justice. And uh, the um, opponents on the left figured they only had enough energy to go after one and they went after rehnquist mm-hmm. and, and Sklee ends up being confirmed on the court by the senate on a 98 to 0 vote <laughs> there's no way with the ideas that he has <laughs> and, and how he is that he would get that today but um most of the justices that are being confirmed today are confirmed with many many votes against them mm-hmm. um uh, in fact justice alito uh who was one of the uh or it was the most recent of the uh, Republican nominated justices, uh, to be confirmed on the court had 42 votes against him. Uh, so he could have actually been filibustered at that point, but was not, um, justice Kagan had many votes against her. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's not really about quality. These are both very fine, smart people with very impressive resumes. It's much more about ideology and a prediction about what these justices are going to do when they get on the court. And it turns out that those predictions are often correct. Um, Justice Alito and Justice Kagan so far have not really surprised us in terms of how they've decided cases. So things have really changed from the time of Scalia and Ginsburg getting on the court. Ginsburg gets on the court with almost a unanimous vote. Uh, wouldn't happen today.
1: Yeah, and there's there's uh, often this sort of uh, feeling that the Supreme Court is supposed to be the last bastion of, uh, you know, free from politics, but that it's becoming more politicized. Um, how much of a role in this sort of politicization, or is or is it not the case, uh, did uh, someone like Scalia play?
0: So my book uh, starts out calling him a uh, polarizing justice in polarized times. I think he was both a creature of the times, but also helped to make the court more polarized. Uh, I mentioned that he was uh, you know, very active uh, as a as a public speaker, as a public intellectual. Um, and, you know, he was out there, uh, not just speaking to law schools. He was part of something called the Federalist Society, which is a group of lawyers, judges, and law students. Uh, He was one of the founders. It's now a quite large organization, and it's become sort of the network and means by which Scalia's ideas of originalism and textualism and a very conservative traditional philosophy has been propagated throughout the courts, And, and in fact, uh president trump has essentially outsourced the picking of judges uh that are he's going to nominate to the federalist society his list of supreme court justices came from the being vetted from the Federalist society and the heritage foundation and so uh, we've kind of divided our justices into teams there's a there's an organization on the on the left called the american constitution society which is much smaller but tries to function like the federalist society you kind of have these Dueling groups, and you see conservative justices only speaking at federal society events, liberal justices only speaking at ACS events. And so we, the, the justices are kind of like gladiators. Uh, someone like Scalia is viewed as a hero, mm-hmm. uh, and he's really, there's really been an effort to deify him since uh, he passed away. Um, so is hero on the on the right and is seen as a great villain on the left. You know the opposite with someone like Justice Ginsburg. You know the notorious, RBG. You know, <laughs> uh, it's hard to imagine that happening without uh, Scalia having set the path.
1: But uh, Scalia and uh, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were were buddies, right?
0: They were, and so it's interesting. The thing about Scalia is, despite the fact that he could be quite harsh in his writings and in what he said, um, and it really was the most sarcastic and caustic justice of any that we've had, uh, he was able, through his charm, to maintain friendships with people across the aisle. Um, That seems to be unique to Scalia. It does not appear that there are uh, cross-ideological friendships on the Supreme Court right now. Mm. In fact, I was at an event where Justice Kagan was asked about this, and she talked about her friendship with Scalia. She actually went on a hunting trip with him. <laughs> uh, and um, and the follow-up question was, well, what about any other justices? And her response was something like, I like Scalia. <laughs> um, so he was unique in that he was uh, charming and funny. Um, you look at someone like Gorsuch, who has said that he follows the originalism and textualism of uh, of uh, Scalia. He did not have the same charm and wit that uh, Scalia had. And you know, I think without that endearing quality, He comes across as having a much harsher edge, even though Scalia was probably harsher than any of them.
1: And speaking of uh, Gorsuch and these these sort of uh, the the, uh, confirmation processes, what what would Scalia have thought about the the refusal to have a hearing for uh, Obama's nominee, uh, Merrick Garland?
0: Yeah, it's hard to know. I, you know, he did lament the politicization of the process. Uh, but he was also, you know, I think someone who was um, quite political. It's hard to know. Uh, there's some speculation in a uh, another book that just came out by Brian Garner, who was a writing partner and friend of Justice Scalia, who speculated that, that uh, Scalia was uh, a, at least intrigued by Donald Trump. And we've heard that uh, Scalia's widow maureen had trump signs on her lawn uh you know if if he was more of a partisan he might have agreed with this stonewalling of the nomination of merrick garland uh it's really i don't have any inside information uh about what scalia thought about that um but uh you know hard to know where he would have come out
1: and you've uh you've mentioned this idea of Originalism, uh, Scalia is known for being at Gorsuch as well. Uh, first of all, what what does it mean to be a, an originalist or to, to subscribe to this originalism?
0: So uh, originalism has different meanings, and Justice Scalia had a very particular uh, meaning uh, that he used. He uh, would refer to original public meaning. So uh, if you're trying to understand what a provision of the Constitution means, uh, his originalism did not, not ask what did the founders intend, what did they personally intend. He would ask what uh, people at the time would have thought that a provision meant. Hmm. And sometimes this was a pure textualist kind of reading. What did the words say? And sometimes, though, he took into account social context. So let me give you two examples. It also shows why uh, one of the reasons why I call him the justice of contradictions, because he wasn't always— Uh, Consistent in how he approached these things. So so let's talk about the 14th amendment passed after the Civil War ratified in the 1860s it contains the Equal Protection Clause, Mm -hmm. which is a very important part of our law and it says um, The state can't deny any person equal protection of the laws and Scalia uh, famously said that the equal protection clause did not protect against sex discrimination because um, Nobody at the time would have thought that it would have protected against sex discrimination now uh, that's looking not just at the words, um, equal protection, but at the social context. And yet when it came to affirmative action, uh, the question of whether, for example, uh, you could give uh, special uh, preferences and enrollment to African-Americans, um, he said, no, just look at the words of the statute. Uh, or look at the words of, of the constitutional provision, I should say. And uh, that tells you what all you need to know. And it turns out that at the time that the 14th Amendment was ratified, Congress passed laws that gave newly freed slaves special benefits. And Scalia was actually confronted about this by one of his clerks. Uh, He used to hire some what he called counter clerks. Uh, He'd sometimes have a a liberal clerk that would try to keep him honest. (laughs) And he, um, this clerk wrote a memo to Scalia and said, you know, there's all of this scholarship out there showing that at the time that the 14th amendment was ratified people thought affirmative action or what we today call affirmative action was just fine you may disagree but what's your response and Scalia never responded he never wrote about it Uh um and so and and one one more example from this area uh at the time that the um uh, 14th amendment was ratified separate but equal was a-okay in fact Uh, the D.C. schools were segregated. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to take an original public meaning understanding of the 14th Amendment, it sounds like Brown versus Board of Education was wrong. And when Scalia was confronted about that by Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center at a a dinner, Scalia's response was just to give a belly laugh and say, oh, well, no theory's perfect. Um, So (laughs) he was not consistent. And he often, when he was confronted with arguments that his uh originalism did not uh was not consistent that uh, he would um deflect it with humor rather than give a substantive response.
1: And and it brings up a larger question about um, you know, this idea of originalism uh and Scalia in particular. How do how do originalists reconcile some of the more problematic parts of the Constitution, like slavery, um and the fact that this document is giving people the right to liberty, but taking it away from other people?
0: Well, slavery is not as much of a problem because the Constitution was amended to deal deal with that problem. And Justice Scalia often said that if there's a problem with the Constitution, it's not a perfect document. The solution is to uh, amend it. And of course, you get this amendment. But uh, Justice Scalia seemed in his uh, originalism to be much more attuned with what the framers intended in the at at the beginning, uh, you know, talking about at the uh, end of the 18th century, uh, then with these um, uh, um, amendments that uh, come later, especially the amendments that provide for equal protection. And so, and also uh, uh, understandings of the due process clause. And so one of the places where he was most upset was when it came to the Supreme Court recognizing a right to same-sex marriage in the Constitution. Uh, he was so upset about this dissenting in a 2015 case called obergefell that uh he wrote a footnote where he said if ever is the price of a fifth vote uh i would have to sign on to and then he quoted some flowery language from justice kennedy's opinion recognizing that same-sex couples have the right to marry <laughs> if i ever uh, had to do that i'd hide my head in a bat uh, that those were his words uh, he said i uh, the uh, you know, we've gone from kind of the, the great writing of uh, Justice Story and John Marshall to the aphorisms of a fortune cookie. Uh, so, you know, he was very <laughs> upset. And yet Stephen Calabresi, who was one of the original founders of the Federal Society, along with Justice Scalia and others, recently wrote a piece uh, arguing that there is a an originalist argument in favor of same sex marriage. Uh, and so, you know, one question is whether the originalism that Justice uh, Scalia defended as a way of cabining judicial discretion actually is a malleable enough doctrine like a, a, a any other methodology that supreme court justices can use that, that can lead to a variety of results in, in in lots of these difficult cases
1: well it does seem it does seem difficult uh if if your view of originalism is the the sort of feelings of the people at the time the document was written i i think there's a tendency in history to sort of view people uh in the past as being less progressive and and we've progressed more but as you're saying one of his clerks pointed out that this might not have been the case and you know if there's an originalist argument to be made for same-sex marriage or something like that um are there any examples of of him being uh maybe confronted with a a, a different originalist argument and sort of conceding it or did he always just sort of shrug it off
0: Well, we don't know, you know, a lot of what we went on at the Supreme Court, we don't know Mm -hmm. about, we don't know what's happened behind the scenes. But we do know that, for example, in one of his most famous majority opinions in a case called Heller, uh, involving whether the Second Amendment includes a personal individual right to bear arms, Justice Stevens, in his dissent, made an originalist argument against that interpretation. And in Citizens United, Justice Stevens made an originalist argument against Justice Scalia's interpretation that the First Amendment uh, allowed for corporations to spend unlimited sums in elections. Uh, if he was ever convinced by an originalist argument, uh, uh, I've not seen it uh, in a way that led to a, a, a result that was, uh, was different than uh, we might otherwise expect, with one uh, exception. In the criminal procedure area, while Justice Scalia often decided cases uh, against criminal defendants, uh, and, and sometimes in harsh ways, for example, He believed that the Supreme Court erred in saying it was unconstitutional to execute uh, the cognitively disabled. He thought that was just fine. But there were some cases, notably in the area of the Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause, which provides that people have the right to confront witnesses against them. Uh, In that area, and also in some search and seizure cases, Justice Scalia decided cases, quoting from original sources, as to what the original meaning was of the, uh, the Fourth and Sixth Amendment to side with criminal defendants. And so he wasn't always lockstep where you would expect conservatives to be. And sometimes he ended up parting with his conservative colleagues in those cases.
1: Let's uh, let's talk about uh, Citizens United, another very uh, sort of landmark decision that, that that's echoing today. Um why did Scalia believe that corporations have a right under the First Amendment to spend what uh, whatever they uh, sort of wish to spend uh, to influence elections? What what was his basis for that argument?
0: Well, Scalia made uh, uh, three arguments, and he actually had this view uh, since 1990 when he dissented in a case called Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce, uh, and uh, wh- one of his arguments was that. Uh, the First Amendment uh, forbids uh, censorship and that this was a form of censorship. And and second, that corporations are associations of people. And third, that uh, these uh, laws are being passed by incumbents to benefit incumbents. And so they're uh, naturally suspect. (laughs) He believed that the First Amendment should be read to not limit uh, any kind of uh, political speech. Uh, Kind of curiously, Justice Scalia and the other justices, the majority in Citizens United, uh, agreed with a lower court without explaining why, that it is permissible to bar foreign uh, people and entities from uh, spending money in our elections. Uh, really, you know, if you took the full libertarian view that political speech is political speech and it's all about what the public deserves to hear, then it's not really clear why a corporation could spend unlimited sums. But uh, Benjamin Blumen, who was a Canadian lawyer living in New York who wanted to spend 50 cents to make flyers at Kinko's to hand out that said vote for Obama, why he'd be committing a felony if he did that. (laughs) Uh, Scalia and the other justices never explained that contradiction. Um, But, uh, you know, when it came to at least domestic sources uh, of um, uh, political speech, he was willing to uh, say that uh, there should be no limits. Uh, He was in favor of disclosure. And Mm -hmm. on that, he differed with uh, fellow originalist uh, Clarence Thomas, who believed that most disclosure laws violate the First Amendment and there was a right to anonymity? Scully so was very opposed to this. He said, This idea that uh, there's something noble about anonymous, um, uh, an anonymous flyer, he said, well, it's no more noble than an anonymous phone call. He said, <laughs> You know, people should stand up for what they believe in. Otherwise, it does not resemble the home of the brave. And he really did try to dis- distance himself sometimes from Justice Thomas. Mm-hmm. He famously told NPR's Nina Totenberg. I'm an originalist and I'm a textualist, but I'm not a nut uh, (laughs) suggesting that, uh, you know, he was not as extreme, that sometimes he would let other issues give way. And, you know, one of the biggest criticisms of Scalia on the right is that he was not Scalia enough, that sometimes he would let other um, uh, issues get in the way of uh, applying a strict, pure originalist and textualist interpretation to constitutional provisions and to statutes.
1: So Scalia was known, uh, one of the things he's very well known for is his uh, his flourish in writing opinions. So do you have any favorites uh, that, that you would care to share?
0: Well, um, you know, th- there are lots of turns of phrase that are, um, uh, you know, uh, some people consider, you know, well drafted. But I think his most important writing uh, on the court was a dissent in a case called Morrison versus Olson, uh, which is probably... Liberals' favorite Scalia dissent, it's about whether or not the um, independent counsel statute, which allowed for you know, Ken Starr type um, prosecutors, uh, whether that violated the Constitution's separation of powers. And talked about all the abuse that could come with having uh, no control over um, these prosecutors and what that would mean for presidential aides and what it would mean for the separation of powers. Uh, it was very forcefully written uh, and uh, Justice Scalia said he had the most regret about that decision—not not that not what he wrote, but that um, Chief Justice Rehnquist wrote the majority opinion, and uh, he said his regret it was that uh, he couldn't convince uh, Rehnquist hmm. uh, you know, that it should, it should have gone the other. He said it was it, it read like it was written by Justice Brennan, you know, who was one of the more most liberal justices on the court while uh, Scalia was on there, and you know I think over time uh, people have come to appreciate. Uh, his, what he said in Morrison versus Olson, and it's not clear that that case would survive if the issues came up again. We don't have that statute right now, and there may be issues with our current special counsel investigating the president, but but they're not they're not uh, uh, the same statutes, and, and there is this um, uh, way to fire the special counsel, as as we all well know if we're following the news.
1: <laughs> hard to hard to miss uh, hard to miss that one. So uh, what what's what do you think uh, Scalia's sort of lasting legacy is? Is it sort of a mixed bag? Is it, you know, this conservative hero? Is it foe to the liberals? What what's his lasting mark on the Supreme
0: Court? Right. So one of the challenges of writing the book is trying to have enough distance to be able to say. And, and it may be that we'll look back differently in 10 or 50 years on him. Right now, I would say that uh, because we're in such a polarized time, and he was such a polarizing justice, views of him are likely to diverge. That is, people uh, on the right are likely to continue to um, point to him as the uh, the model. And in fact, I think he's likely to be more influential in death than in life. and, And people will forget about the rough edges and argue that he found the holy grail the way to properly interpret cases. Uh, And uh, he certainly has changed even the way um, more liberal justices and judges write about statutory interpretation cases. Justice Kagan uh, famously declared at the 2015 Scalia Lecture, we are all textualists now. (laughs) I don't think that means that uh, in a tough case with a high ideological uh, valence that uh, textualism is going to convince liberals to go away they wouldn't otherwise go or, or convince conservatives to go away they wouldn't otherwise go. But he certainly changed the way that people write about. Um, how to interpret a statute. I think on the left, he will continue to be vilified, especially for statements he made, which uh, in some of his cases, which many interpreted as harboring an anti-gay animus. Uh, And I spent a lot of time uh, in the book trying to figure out if he actually had that or he was just taking the position that um, that this is an issue that the public, that uh, each state could decide for itself and that it was not something that uh, he personally uh, might have thought. Uh, and the evidence is is uncertain, uh, but uh, you know I, I think some of his talk, for example, about the so-called homosexual agenda, uh, or some of his other writings about uh, and, and 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 things he said about whether uh, one could have moral disapproval of of homosexuality the way one could have moral disapproval of murder uh, that these were very controversial statements, and uh, he will continue to be disliked i think by many on the left but he presented a complex picture and it was not uh really um uh you know he's not at this point considered one of the great justices by everyone across the political spectrum Mm -hmm. maybe it will be at some point as memories fade uh (laughs) that he will be seen that way but 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 as of now as with justice ginsburg on the left i think he'll have his supporters and he'll have his detractors All right.
1: Well, the book is The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia, and the Politics of Disruption. Rick, thank you for coming on today. It
0: has been my pleasure.
1: That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And if you like what we're doing, please subscribe and leave us a rating because it really helps.